one of the advantages we had in 2018, we did not start here, but we got it here. Everything was about the House races. And what most people forget is in 2017, everything was about the Senate. And we slowly had to chip away at the national narrative to say, the Senate is awesome, it's amazing, but the House is like the check. You want to, you want to, you know, you want you want the people's house to be the check on the presidency, and so we had to intentionally work to make the house sort of the sexy place to go. Right. Um, great candidates and a lot of money helped do that. Welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. My name is Eric Dank. Ben Huber and I were lucky to have a great conversation with Dan Cena who is recognized as the master architect of the Democratic takeover of the House of Representatives in 2018. Dan was the first Hispanic to hold the position of executive director of the Democratic Campaign Committee, and before being elevated to director in 2018, he served as the deputy executive director and director of analytics, voter contact, and strategy in 2016. Before his time at the DCCC, he was the political director for the Democratic Governors Association, campaign manager for Senator Tom Udall's successful re-election campaign, and the Latino Get Out the Vote and message director for Patriot Majority's independent expenditure efforts in Senator Harry Reid's re-election campaign. Ben and I really enjoyed talking to Dan about lessons learned in electoral politics from the 2018 cycle, how they might be applied to the 2020 cycle, and the future of the Democratic Party, among other topics. To begin, we asked Dan how he's enjoyed his semester on campus as a Georgetown Institute of Politics fellow. I'm sure you know this as, as somebody who is part of sort of the, the Georgetown world. It's an amazing, amazing university. Mm-hmm. And the students, the faculty, folks have just been amazing. Um, much, much smarter and harder working than I was when I was in <laughs> undergraduate or graduate school. But uh, it's, it's just, it's really, really cool. And the students in particular, you all just have a you sort of have a presence in the world and an idea of, of, uh, of um, sort of civic responsibility that, that I don't think is, is, is sort of commonplace everywhere else. So it's been an amazing experience. Yeah, I know yeah. I've used the word amazing like nine times. <laughs> That's all right. Um, yeah, I mean, the undergrads go to GU politics, so definitely, I mean, more, more involved than I was when I was an undergraduate. Yeah. Um, do you think there's like any, any sort of, but I'm sure they still hold sort of opinions about, you know, uh, priors about how things work. Do you, do you see uh, there or elsewhere sort of like uh, popular wisdom about electoral politics that you see expressed that you think is just wrong, that for some reason has become accepted as? Oh, what a great question. Um, what a great question. I, I, I think a few things. Yeah, that's a really smart question. Um, I, I, I think the biggest thing I have been surprised by is is the barrier to entry in the political world into the campaign world mm-hmm. is much lower than it is on sort of the official side, mm-hmm. and so so there's a there's a there is uh, it's interesting because you go through sort of your undergraduate career trying to get internships and like knocking on the door and knocking on the door and then hoping you get accepted on the official side right whether it's mm-hmm. on the house side or the senate side or a governor's office or you know, even a mayor's office. And that there's this very rigid process you have to go through. Sure. On the political side, we will take anybody we will, we can get, right? Like any able-bodied sort of person, we can always find a role for in a political operation. And so the difference between the two is, is has been really interesting. I can't tell you, there's like there have been very few office hours where we haven't had somebody come in and be like, gosh, I, I hope I can get an internship on a campaign. And my advice to them is don't get an internship, get a job, <laughs> get paid to do it. And so, um, so I think it really is more about sort of the getting your foot in the door 
um, that I think is perceived to be a lot harder than it actually is. The truth is on the political side, it's it's that we are constantly looking for smart, capable people coming out of a university like this, the work ethic that already exists here, you'll get given responsibility relatively quickly and be able to move up sort of the political food chain, which ironically makes it much easier to get into the official side. It makes it much easier to get internships. It makes it much easier to get jobs. Um, um, so so it's not really a misnomer. It just is, uh, you know, on the political side, I'll take most able bodies they can possibly get their hands on. Presidential races might be a little slow, but, but uh, we'll definitely take the able bodies. Makes sense. Um, well, so I sort of want to move to your your, your role as executive director of the DCCC. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I was th- thinking back in 2018 um, and looking forward on, on this Congress's agenda and fu- agendas in future Congresses, mainly from the Democratic perspective, um, says your world. I was wondering, do you feel like the, in general politics, there seems to be a feeling at least somewhere that politics is getting somewhat less representative, um, that there are pr- issues, it's enfranchisement, uh, um, of the, these sort of these sort of problems. I mean, I mean the like the electoral system specifically, not necessarily people's attitudes towards politics. Um, but it seems like this new Congress is sort of interested in pursuing some some changes, some legal changes, uh, structural changes to how voting works. Yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, from your perspective, having you know run a run a, a huge massive campaign, um, what kind of changes do you think uh, would be necessary? What would be possible? What would be well, I think um, not, not not to nerd out on the legislative side too too much, but like HR one, which is just this mm-hmm. comprehensive election reform package, makes you know ballot access, voting right access, all of these things that are fundamental much easier. Uh, you know, it's a little bittersweet to have taken back the House with just this amazing diverse really female-led crop of new representatives. And then, like, it's, you know, it's going to get 30 seconds in the Senate and it's going to die. And so that is, that is, that is, <clears throat> that is a little bit hard to see. But, but I think it is a step in the right direction. Look, I am a big believer in anything you can do to make it easier for people to participate it is critical across the country, right? Like, you want to get new voices into the electoral system. You want to get younger voters in the electoral system. Like, at the age of 18, everybody can vote. Get rid of national registration. Everybody can vote. Do it like they do in Canada and most sort of civilized countries. Like the day you get your driver's license, you can register to vote. Um, the day you turn 18 and you fill out your civil service card, you can register to vote. And you're, you're registered to vote. And really strip away sort of the registration barriers. I'm also a big believer. I don't know where you're from, but like I'm a big believer in, in, in things like vote by mail and early vote. Like things that just completely remove the barriers to entry to voting. Um, eventually, we're going to be able to vote on our phones. Eventually, um, uh, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco is doing some really cool testing of, of sort of remote voting. Um, we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, those institutions are very slow to change. How we actually vote is very slow to change. Um, but, but anything that, that really, really lowers the barrier to getting involved in the system, making it easier for, for, like, look, you should be able to vote where you go to college. You should have the choice. Like, wherever you're going to school, you should be able to vote there or you should be able to vote at home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because you do occupy both spaces, um, and you should be able to have sort of that determining factor so, so or be able to make that decision for yourselves. And we should have laws that, that allow for that. That and getting corporate money out of politics, I think, are probably the two most important things we can possibly do. Um, and just really, you know, getting to a place where, in particular, the corporate side money um, it just just can't flow into 
PACs can't flow into independent operations anymore. Um, and, and really changing how we finance elections in the United States, I think, is critical to opening up the doors and honestly restoring like public trust and value in, in what is an honorable profession. Most people who run for office have honorable reasons to do it. Um, I got to ask you about some of the more out there. What do you think about statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico? I am a bit, well, as somebody who just moved out of Washington, D.C., I'm a big fan of of being able to actually vote in D.C. and and it actually means something. It would be Um, nice. Yeah, look, I mean, I've got this really cool picture that I took of my daughter um, on on election day for Hillary Clinton. Um, um, I'm looking to see if I can actually find it here quickly. But but um, with her, with a picture next to Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine's name, and it's like you can tell it's a little girl's finger and like the nail polish is sort of chipped off. Um, and as awesome as it was to be able to do that with my daughter and cast that vote, to the degree that vote actually mattered in like the larger electoral world, sort of debatable, right? Um, and I think the city itself, uh, it, it struggles with, with, with resources. It struggles with sort of its place in the world. Um, obviously what happened with Puerto Rico and how um, the Trump administration sort of handled the hurricane and handled those folks look or didn't uh, look the truth is is like if they are viewed as citizens at least from our viewpoint um, I think they get more resources and they're just at a better place Um, I don't fully know the ins and outs of the economics for them to be perfectly honest but I am a big believer in the Democratic Party being bigger, the United States being bigger, our ideas being bigger. It, it is sort of our old role um, that we have sort of forgotten about. Um, and I think Trump, to some degree, has made it harder for, for us to remember that the United States is best when we sort of point to the moon and say, we're going to go there. We're best when we have a big idea that brings us all together. Um, and I think statehood for Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, assuming the economics actually work, um, I'm a big believer in just the United States being sort of as big as it can possibly be. Sure. And respectful, obviously. Extending rights to as many people as possible. 100%. Right. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned the, the sort of makeup of Congress earlier, and I want to uh, the, this Congress, and I want to get back to that. Um, but I also want to avoid talking about presidential politics since okay. it's pretty. You can get <laughs> just that, a little divisive. Get that news anywhere, yeah. really. Yeah, that's true. That's true. More, more of that. And I'm wondering, instead of focusing on presidential races, I was wondering if there are congressional races in 2020 that you think people who care about the makeup of, you know. Congress and the Democratic Party, both like what what they should be places they should be looking at races sure. they should be focused on totally. So let's start in the East Coast and work. Let's work west. Absolutely. Um, and this is also going to show you just sort of how much useless knowledge I have in my head, having just done this because I can do this off the top of my head. But oh, this is great. I love it. De- <laughs> Debbie Mascarell Powell, um, who who represents a, a Clinton district that Clinton, Hillary Clinton won by sixteen points. It was the most Democratic district in the country that that we didn't own. Um, she won um, this past election. She's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, she's her her family is from from um, 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 Central America Spanish speaker really embodies everything that is wonderful about sort of South Florida um, she's a great candidate running for the very first time in the Miami media market very expensive um, really has an amazing story to tell a woman of color so so I'm super super jazzed about her um, um, uh, let's see where else should we go um, Joanna Hayes, who is the member of Congress, the new Johanna. She's an African-American woman, teacher from Connecticut, uh, newly elected woman, um, really amazing bio, brand new to the to the, to the political stage, um, running in Connecticut. I don't know how much you know about Connecticut. It's actually used to be a Democratic state. It's really no longer a Democratic state. Um, and has become, um, she's sort of the last Democrat standing. So um, we definitely want to keep an eye on her. Um, incredibly excited about that. 
um, in New York, for those of you who are sort of from the Hudson Valley who may be listening, um, area, um, Anthony Delgado, uh, New York 19, amazing guy, um, Harvard educated, just this amazing story to tell, half Hispanic, half African American, really cool dude, um, running in New York 19 um, um, for re-election, so incredibly excited about that. And then I'll just sort of bounce around a little bit. Um, uh, there's a, a former um, veteran MMA fighter uh, in Kansas too, uh, who's incredibly exciting. Uh, uh, Sharice Davis is, is a Native American MMA fighter, veteran, um, uh, just amazing woman. Um, she's the second African American, uh, uh, Native American to be elected to, to, to Congress. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my home state of New Mexico, Xochitores Smalls, 1A district that Hillary Clinton got 35 in. You heard me right. Hillary Clinton got 35% of the vote. Uh, Xochitores Smalls, just an amazing woman. I actually would really recommend everybody go to work for her. She's probably going to be president someday. Um, if Mikey Sherrill, who is in New Jersey, who is a Navy uh, helicopter pilot, doesn't beat her to it, and again, an amazing woman, um, just brings a really cool flavor to the district. Um, I'm trying to think on the West Coast, who is sort of um, most interesting. I think Jason Crow in Colorado, um, who represents this area sort of just outside of Denver. Um, I used to call him my favorite Army Ranger. And uh, just brings this a unique bio to the to the to the to the political space. Um, he is still my favorite Army Ranger. He just also happens to be a member of Congress now. And then I would round it out with a guy named Mike Levin, who is um, a member of Congress from. Actually, I'd round it out with Mike Levin and Katie Porter. Mike Levin, what's that? I was wondering about Katie. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Katie Porter for a second. But but Mike Levin, uh, like me, he's a coyote. He's half Hispanic, half Anglo. Um, represents um, San Diego tough part of the country to represent, but yeah. he's also got a military base there, so he's in a swingable seat. Really, really good guy, a freshman. And then Katie Porter, single mom, uh, really, really diverse district that she represents in Orange County. Um, a heck of a race. A heck of a race. You know, we were incredibly lucky to win it, but we won it because we got a great candidate. So really, whether you like, you know, whether it's from single mom to, you know, half Hispanic, half Anglo, to Native American, to, you know, woman of color in Trump district, to, you know, a different type of Hispanic in, in, in Central Florida or South Florida, I should say. The the um, uh, this this Congress is really outstanding, and they're all in swing districts. These are not safe Democratic districts I just mentioned. These are yeah. all swing districts. Well, thanks for that. That was great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you love it. You literally love it. Uh, you can maybe show us why you won. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I really appreciate it. Um, but I do want to ask you actually about those swing districts. Sure. So, I mean, I'm thinking back to. Uh, and you can correct me here what if I say something that I you know is uh, a prior that I have that is wrong maybe but my, my impression you know I, I think back to when I was first getting very interested in politics 2006 2008 era um, and I feel like uh, there's sort of I, I have this vision of, of you know of Rahm Emanuel sort of like of uh, <clears throat> uh, focusing on these moderate candidates wanting wanting to push uh, ideologically mo- moderate ticket in both those elections uh, Having great electoral success, but then having relatively little legislative success uh, following 2008, I think the Blue Dogs and mm-hmm. sort of ACA debacle, um, which of course you know eventually got passed. So I'm not saying this wasn't successful at some level, but everyone got wiped out in 2010. Okay. And I wonder how you build a, a governing coalition. I mean, maybe this is the question, but how do you build a governing coalition that can last and get elected? I mean, or get elected and then last, I suppose is the order, but. That's a great question. Um, 
Wow, that is a great question. And obviously from 2006 to 2008 and to 2010, the, the passage of, of Obamacare and all of those other sort of pieces that were major, major milestones and changes in the, in the U.S. Um, um, led to, to, um, to obviously 2010 where, where we got wiped out, but, um, which everybody knows. Um, it, it's a very, very good question. I, I think there's a series of things that, that, that need to go into it. Uh, one of the things this past year in 2018 that was unique and different is that our candidates were truly seen as individuals where, that were different than the traditional Democrat. And, and when you get off on that foot, when you were seen as different from day one, um, you need to be able to preserve that and keep that while you are in office. And, and, and that is an actual fairly hard thing to do. And so you're going to look at members of Congress now who are going to have to be able to tell stories of, with constituents with their own voting records around where do they agree with the party, where do they disagree with the party, where do they agree with the president, where do they disagree with the president. And I think establishing sort of an independence is, is the first step. I think the next step of it is, is having validators in your districts that can help validate your independence and validate the work that you're doing. Um, look, when these big national waves form, they are hard to stop. But the only way you can basically create a raft of it that survives, and we saw the Republicans try and do this this past cycle in many districts, is you localize everything. It, it, it isn't about... The, it isn't about healthcare. It's about the local hospital. It's not about you know um, necessarily national defense or security. It's about your local veterans, and everything becomes about the localization of the issue. Um, and so that is it. That is sort of a, a key piece to the playbook. Um, but you know, look, if the Democrats are fortunate enough to win the White House in 2020, 2022 combined with redistricting could you know is a completely unpredictable year. Um, and it's an unpredictable year whether we win the White House or not because all of these seats get redrawn, yeah. and so it'll be it'll be completely different. But but like look, this, America is a country that sits right in the middle, right? It is a country that that is neither too far left or too far right. We have cities that pull it in each direction. We have rural parts that pull it in other directions. But as a whole, we're a pretty pragmatic, glasses half full group of people um, that sort of like to be right in the middle. Yeah, do you think there's a there's something to framing issues? I mean, you talk about I, I was, that was really interesting. Like, it makes a lot of sense to me that you'd want to make issues hyper local. Mm-hmm. That um, it seems like it's the the GOP has actually somewhat tried the opposite of trying to tie everyone to either Obama and or it, back in the day or to now destruction or Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to look at the, the playbook that was developed from two thousand eight from two thousand eight to two thousand eighteen. Mm-hmm. The Republicans were in the majority in the in this in the House, and so rather than having to run, um, I'm sorry, from two thousand ten to two thousand eighteen, yeah. rather than having to run on a proactive, here's what we're going to do for the country agenda, you basically run as the counter to the sitting president, sure. right? Once they have everything, that playbook falls apart yeah. and becomes much much harder to be able to. Yeah, we definitely saw that with the uh, Obamacare repeal. Hundred percent, yeah. right? And it's like, look, like Nancy Pelosi wasn't on the ballot. She wasn't running to be your member of Congress. Yeah. Um, you will see us this cycle do something very similar with Mitch McConnell, sure. right? Mitch McConnell's not on the ballot. Well, he's on the ballot in Kentucky, but he's not on the ballot anywhere <laughs> else for the Senate races. It doesn't matter. He will become the foil because the you know there are people in the country who are less popular than Donald Trump. One of them happens to be Mitch McConnell, right. and wow. so you know it. it, it, it you have to sort of be able to make these ties very easily for for the electorate, but um, but the electorate's also savvy enough to know that that they're not actually on the ballot. So it's a little bit of a dance. Absolutely. 
Do you think that there's a, there's a danger in hyperlocalizing issues that if you're trying to get something passed, a big a big national? I mean, I think of some of the legislative ideas that Democrats are, especially the presidential candidates, are running on. I, is there a danger to folk like sort of a bunker mentality, getting too focused on uh, your your specific district and not able to enacts, you know, sure. national legislation. Well, well, look, every election is a function of the environment in which it happens in, right, in, in sure. the context in which the election occurs. And so if in two years from now or four years from now we're, we're, we're you know, the Democrats hold the House and hold the presidency and we're going into a tough midterm, you may see them localized. Next year in, the, in 2020, um, I think you may see members of Congress look for some local validators to help establish their independence and keep that sort of frame going, mm-hmm. but it's a three-legged stool. The other two big pieces are going to be a national conversation probably on healthcare, and a national conversation really on paychecks, taxes, sort of these these sort of more meat and potato kitchen table um, 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 issues that will absolutely be nationalized, 100%. We can walk and chew gum as Democrats, even though sometimes we trip ourselves. Um, <laughs> and, and so the ability to sort of localize and nationalize at the same time, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, However, we are going into a presidential year. 99.999% of the messaging is going to be nationalized. Yeah. It's impossible not to do it. Of course. Yeah. And there's just too much There's too much oxygen in the presidential race that burns above everything. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it's, it's really, really hard. One of the advantages we had in 2018, we did not start here, but we got it here. Everything was about the House races. Right. And what most people forget is in 2017, everything was about the Senate. And we slowly had to chip away at the national narrative to say, the Senate is awesome, it's amazing, but the House is like the check. You want, to, you, want to, you, know, you, want, you want the people's house to be the check on the presidency. And so we had to intentionally work to make the house sort of the sexy place to go. Right. Um, great candidates and a lot of money helped do that. Um, but then it just began to feel real for people. And, um, and again, it's not that the Senate isn't cool and sexy. It just we were able to make the House that. 2020, you're not going to have that opportunity to the same degree. Well, plus you had an awful map in the Senate, so it was probably behooved you to... <laughs> still. Um, yeah. No, but they still picked like... up some good seats, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not um, trying to slam how, yeah, yeah, yeah. how no, they did, but um, yeah. Yeah, it was just a much harder races, I think. 100%. Um, but yeah, I mean, things that make sense, like the House is also where, you know, in a lot of ways it seems like where legislation should start, at least where... Um, you know, big big priority spending legislation must start. But um, I guess I'm, I'm I, I lied a little bit. I'm going to ask you about presidential politics yeah, slightly. Okay. I'm wondering. It's impossible not to. Let's be honest. Yeah. I'm wondering. Um, well, I'll still keep it focused on the house a little bit. I'm wondering what the candidate, sh- how how you think the candidate should approach. Um, I mean, okay, so we don't know what's going to happen with the Senate. Like, we'll leave that lot out because I'm I'm not one to make sorts of predictions. But like, um, uh. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't look great, but uh, looking at the House and possibly a Democratic president, how, should, how do you think the presidential candidate, hopeful, should uh, position themselves and like, interact with, with the current House majority? How should they, should they um, look to them for legislative ideas? Should they tell them what they think what good legislative priorities are? Like, what... Well, as the guy who just went back to House, I think they should just follow the House completely and okay. do exactly what the House does. Um, the challenge with that is, is once you become an executive or for an executive office, the expectations of the office are very different. Right? The thing that's cool about mayors, the things that's cool about governors, the thing that's cool about the president of the United States and those campaigns, you are expected to have ideas. 
right? And it's 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 it. When somebody asks you about education, you're expected to have a plan. When people ask you about bro- roads and infrastructure, you're expected to have a plan. Mm-hmm. They are executives. They are doers. They are not bill writers, right? And so the big difference is just between the two immediately is different. I started most of my career and have done most of my career in the executive world. They're fun elections to do because you have to have things to talk about. I think there are some parallels to between the two right now that the country really wants to see. I think healthcare reform, access to affordable healthcare, in particular access to affordable prescription drugs, something has to be done about access to, to, to just more affordable prescription drugs. I think the House is trying to sort of figure out what to do with that. I think every single presidential campaign needs to have a plan for exactly here's how I'm going to make penicillin cheaper for you. I'm joking. Penicillin's already cheap, but like, like you know, like getting prescription drugs available to folks that 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 are cheaper and, and easier. Um, pre-existing, you know, protecting pre-existing conditions. Like we just need to take that off the table. Like everybody has a pre-existing conditions where you wear glasses, or you you have children, or you're a diabetic, or you have a heart condition. Like the idea that somehow you bring something to the table that is going to remove you from coverage is just completely. It's it's like, yeah. it's crazy that that's the world we live in. So so, um, but I'm done on my soapbox. Um, but I think so. I think the the uh, just healthcare generally. I think again, I'll go back to HR one. The idea that 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 the role corporate PAC money plays, the role opening our elections play, um, is incredibly important. Every single one of the presidential races at this point has taken the no corporate PAC pledge, and and I, I think just I think if we win the presidency and we have the House, and there's, the Senate is close, I think you will probably see pretty big election reform and pretty big campaign finance reform go through all the chambers, yeah. um, um, which I think the country just desperately wants and needs to see. Um, look, the third piece of it, and I think how um, how they happen, uh, is, is a little bit different between the presidential race and, and, um, and uh, on the House side. Um, but it really is just the difference in, in the way the chambers are designed is honestly, you two guys are about to graduate from school. We were just having this conversation before we turned on yeah. jobs and paychecks and a view for where the country is going to go with jobs and paychecks. Um, obviously, the House can 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 significantly impact the tax structure of the, of the country and who gets a tax break and who doesn't. Um, and obviously, on the executive side, you have to have an idea for how you're going to do that, how you're going to keep Americans working, how are you going to sort of continue to to um, build off of what is a really weird economy right now. People generally feel like the economy is moving in the right direction, but if you ask people, do you have enough money? If you lost your job, do you have enough money to make it through a month or two months? Most Americans don't. And so there's this weird uneasiness that exists underneath what is basically a decent economy. Um, so anyway, I think all three of those things, they will get there in slightly different directions, but I think you will see all three of those things being... Um, core issues that both the House and the Senate and even the presidency will will sort of wrestle over. Yeah. Well, it is an interesting issue, right? Because it seems more and more the how the average person is doing is, is more and more untethered from the sort of standard economic indicators that we look at, like totally. how the stock market's doing or totally. stuff like that, right? Totally. Most people don't have retirement accounts. Most people don't have any of those things, really. No. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Do you think there, I mean, kind of, I guess, do you think there are issues that are sort of weren't issues maybe an election cycle two ago, the bill totally. coming. Totally. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm excited I, about this question. No, I think uh, that's about it. What's what, what yeah, do you think? Yeah, no, no, no. You know, I am a, I am a pretty moderate guy, um, but but as, as ideologically speaking, but there are some issues that I think are really beginning to transcend where you are on, on any sort of spectrum. I think um, you look at somebody like Jay Inslee, who's running for president, who's basically running on a single issue, which yeah. is which is climate and climate change. I, I, I think it's really, really hard to deny that there is something happening truly in the atmosphere uh, and that the country and the world is ch- isn't changing. Um, 
And and so I think it, there, we're very much going to see an election where climate and the environmental issues will, I hope, become um, a bit more of a of a of um, uh, for lack of a better word, lightning rod for for change. Uh, and look, I think, and I, this is a testament to your generation and to to really voters under the age of thirty. I think you will see guns and gun control, um, which was a which look. I mean, the folks from Parkland, all all the students in two thousand eighteen, they started something that that contributed in a very large way to the, the change narrative and to legitimizing the change narrative, to legitimizing people's stories of, 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 of gun violence. Um, um, I, I think you will see both of those issues become become more salient and, and things that, that um, people care about. Um, so, Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more, um, especially on the, the climate change issue. I had a question about the sort of identity of the Democratic Party moving hmm. forward. I think there's a lot of discussion and, uh, I guess, bloviating about the progressive uh, like progressive wing versus your more establishment Democrat. And I guess I'm curious of how you define where the Democratic Party is at ideologically. Like you mentioned that you see yourself as a little bit more moderate. Yeah. But there's these issues that totally. are, are really um, quickly quickly coming into the national spotlight uh, and just sort of what your view of what a Democrat is. It's a great question. Boy, is that a question. That's a question for the ages. Um, and I'm doing this uh, this very interesting project um, on the Democratic brand with another with another client. Uh, and it's very interesting. We just got done doing a bunch of focus groups in the Midwest, sort of the blue wall area on exactly this question. What is a Democrat? What is the brand? Who speaks for the brand? Is it AOC? Is it the presidential candidate? Is it Pelosi? Is it lo- your local Democratic governor? What is it? Uh, and it turns out, if you put you know forty five Democrats in a room, you get forty five different answers. Yeah. Uh, look, the truth is, is is I am a Democrat, and I am a Democrat who is fairly moderate on economic issues, but fairly progressive on 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 um, guns and immigration issues. I'm super progressive on when it comes to you know what does equal protection under the law actually mean, and a big tent, and like that's the definition of being a Democrat. Like you can have different segments of, of issues where you can sort of move in between them. It's the party of inclusion, that's why. Um, and so I don't have a real clear idea or clear definition for you. Um, I, I, I think generally being a Democrat means that there is a seat at the table available for everybody. And and uh, that is sort of the as much of a summation as you could possibly build the Democratic Party down to. Um, but again, you talk to 10 different Democrats, you get 10 different answers. Sort of the pitfalls of a big tent writer, maybe also totally. the promise, but um, totally. But it does stress the importance of the presidential races and these these campaigns being able to boil everything down to a couple of different things, yeah. right? Like make America great again is is. Uh, I mean, look, whether you like him or you don't like him, it's it's uh, it's it's good marketing and good branding. Certainly a message. Yeah, um, certainly a message. A very clear one. Yeah. Um, I guess I'd w- I'd one more for you on um on this issue of climate change that you brought up. Um. It's sort of, yeah, and feel free to put on this because I certainly would if I was being asked in an okay. interview, but do you think that, uh, you know, we look at look at the, the scale of, of what kinds of reforms are going to be needed in climate change. I think like, policymakers and like economists even have a hard time, in theory, wrapping their heads around the sorts of changes we need, right? Like, those are people who are supposed to be able to say, like, crazy things, and we need to do X, Y, or Z, and it's like the actual politicians have to be like, okay, but I need to win re-election, like, people need to... Yeah. Accept this, like, right. do you think that as const- the way it's constituted now, like we 
can even theoretically respond to these sorts of changes? I know it's sort of a grim question to ask, but I think it's one we kind of have to. Like, yeah. Do you think we legislatively and, and I mean, just overall, that the federal government has the ability to respond to a, a crisis of this scale at this point? Look, America is best when we do big things. We have always been best when we point to the moon and say we're going to go there. Yeah. And and I don't I don't want to fully quote AOC from from two weeks ago, but AOC basically said the exact same thing. Like this is a time and place to be able to to, to sort of do this, and there's nobody else who can do it. Um, you know, look, I think our neighbors to the north um, in in Canada are doing some really interesting things around carbon taxation and mm-hmm. and and sort of you know what your footprint actually costs your neighbors. Uh, I think is something that is 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 interesting politically, very very hard to get done. Um, but I think as we look at something like NAFTA 2.0, which is currently um, currently sort of in, I don't know if it's on the shelf or it's going to come to the shelf or it's in the drawer, um, but, you know, the president and, and NAFTA and Canada, excuse me, and, and, and Canada and Mexico have, have clearly come to an early agreement. I, I, I think when you look at the ability to use trade and economics to make our neighbors environmentally better, that is that that is a step in the right direction. But this is this is a crisis that that um, um, I think the United States has to choose to be big on, um, and its leaders have to choose to do it, even if it costs them, you know, um, potential election down the road. Uh, as someone whose job it is to win those elections, that, that means quite a bit more than most yeah, people. It's tough. It's tough. Um, but I do think there's other ways of doing it. Yeah. So a question that we've been asking everybody. Uh, at the end of an interview is if people were really interested in some of the topics that we've discussed today and wanted to learn more, is there anything that you've read, a book that you've read, recent articles, oh, a, a podcast that you listen to and enjoy? Just um, sort of your recommendations if people are uh, excited and want to learn more about the things that we've discussed or well, not. Wow, or that's, that's a great question. Um, my, my path is a little strange uh, in that I, list, I read a lot of public opinion polling. So like pollster.com, which is basically Huffington Post. But but um, I spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot of time on Politico. Um, uh, this is going to sound strange, but remember I'm a political person responsible for making sure culturally um, my brain works correctly. I spent a lot of time reading local newspapers. So I spent a lot of time on like Tucson.com, um, you know, the El Paso Sun. Um, I spent a lot of time just every single day going through local newspapers to really see what is going on. You know, it's really interesting when you strip away locally, you know, what is happening with the local sports team and what is basically like the crime page, yeah. you know, like what is actually being reported locally in some places has nothing to do with what we're actually doing here in Washington, D.C. And huh. it's really important to understand because this, this business isn't about us. It's not about you. It's about you when you're the voter at home. It's about the voter. It begins and ends there. So I spent a ton of time reading like what Pew sends out um, um, to make sure that I am culturally sort of competent in, in, in terms of national winds of change, mm-hmm. um, but then spent a lot of time localizing um, what we're seeing and is my instinct in a certain place correct based off of what you're seeing in the local news. Um, local news still drives things much more than Twitter does. I know that's hard for us to believe, uh, but it really does. Um, um, you know, if, if, you've got, if you've got a local place like in Albuquerque, New Mexico, for example, where the top three news stories are always about crime and you're talking about something that isn't about keeping people safe, you're going to miss the mark no matter how smart and dynamic you are. So I just use my home state as, as, as an example. But um, um, I guess you read globally to act locally. I know it's cliche, but that's what I would do. Yeah. That's great. Well, 
yeah, that's all. Uh, almost sadly all we have time. Yeah. For. Awesome. All yeah. right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, we really appreciate you. Thank you, Georgetown. <laughs> yeah, really great. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you.